Job chapter 1 is where we turn this morning. Job chapter 1. And recognizing that God is on display. He has put himself on display here in in the book or the gospel, if you don't mind, of according to Job. He is here demonstrating that he is right. He is righteous. He is good. He is sovereign. He is attentive to things on earth. You think Satan is attentive, or the one who roams around, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Well, God, insofar as Satan, you know, he roams around, God also, his eyes, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, seeing both the evil and the good. Whose eyes are doing that? It's God's eyes are doing that. God knows all these things. God knows not just what happens externally. I mean, we can see that to some regard, but he knows the hidden thoughts of the heart. He knows the thoughts and intents of the heart. And therefore, he was able, God, God can do this. He is the one who endorsed Job. Remember how we studied uh, a few weeks ago now, first verse of this uh, book, there was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. That assessment of Job, that he is a righteous person, he is a faithful person, very similar to what we read about Zechariah in Luke chapter 1. This guy was blameless. He was upright. He, he was a, a priest. He was serving in the, temp, in the temple there in, in, uh, in, John, or in Luke chapter 1. He was righteous, just like Noah, just like Daniel, just like David. He was righteous, yes, in his conduct, in his behavior, and so forth. And we saw about that in verse 5, especially uh, Job, anyhow. But it's even deeper than that. It's not just external. It's an internal attitude of trust, of dependence, of faith in God. We can, we can look nice on the outside. In fact, a lot of people get all dressed up and they come to church. You know, they're the, the Christmas and Easter Christians that come just on those times because that's what you do. And that's good. I'm okay. It's good in the sense they're in church, they're hearing the gospel. Maybe they'll get saved this time. But otherwise, where is, where is God in their lives? Where is God when things are good? Where is God when things are bad? And I, you know, put those in air quotes because we can't really know what our good things and what are bad things. God is able to work things out for his glory and for our benefit, for our good. And not all the things that work out for our good, we would classify as good. Car accidents, injuries, health issues, losses, uh, other things. We don't always interpret those at first glance, first blush, as, hey, that's a good thing. I'm glad that I was stricken. Well, actually, David said that. The psalmist said, I was thankful you struck me because I fear your commandments. But the idea is that, that we have an eternal perspective on these things. Job did, seeing God, like Isaiah 6, see God himself enthroned and ruling over all and attentive to our needs. This is the gospel according to Job, seeing God's sovereignty, his majesty, his, his supremacy over all things, first in all things, but then recognizing who can be right before God, who can stand before God, well, one who's blameless and upright, fearing the Lord, turning away from evil, but that is an internal thing. It's faith. It is a righteousness granted by faith, not because of works. Job was a good man, right? He was a reputable, uh, greatest man of the sons of the East. He was also a good employer, all these servants around him, good trader, you know, commerce, commerce, man of commerce and business and, and all this. He had a good reputation. He feared God. And he, that fear of God is going to carry him through. Now, he's going to get off the rails a little bit as we go through there go through this this book but he always comes back to it's god god is the one and having a clear clear focus uh, upon god 
uh, through the trials that are about to fall on him, helped carry him through and even into his his uh, afterlife, afterlife being Job 42, but also the after Job 42. Last verse of, of the last uh, chapter of this book says, and Job died. And he did, and he entered into his reward. He was able to understand that, oh, now I get it, what was going on here. So we read, we've read uh, the description of Job. We read about that heavenly court scene in verses 6 through 12. And now we see uh, something or the aftermath, the after effects of that conversation. Essentially, Satan said to God, does Job fear God without cause? Or does Job fear God without, uh, for nothing, without some gain? In other words, Satan is accusing God of doing the same thing that Satan does, which is to say bribing followers, trying to entice them to follow after him. Satan does it all the time. That's his primary operation, mode of operation. God doesn't do it that way. God does not have to give trinkets and gifts and attract people to him. And we don't need to do that either, by the way, as churches. We don't need to be attractional in the sense of, of trying to be hip and relevant. And, you know, me wearing all the, the fancy, I mean, can you imagine what that would look like? Me, skinny jeans and, and hair, which I don't have much of, doing all the things. You, you just don't do that. We preach the scripture. We preach what the word of God says. And God attracts the people. God brings them to himself. And so Satan was accusing God of doing the things that, that he, he excels in. I mean, all sorts of people go after the shiny stuff and, and right into Satan's trap. Yuck, we don't want that. We want to see through that and see he's a liar. He is a deceiver. And by the way, he is a murderer and a thief. We're going to see that here in these, chapters, in these verses, beginning at verse 13. I'm going to read the text through the end of the chapter, and we'll look at it in a summary fashion this morning. Verse 13, it's mislabeled here on the slide, but verse 13 says, Now it happened that on the day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in the house of their brother, the firstborn, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them. They also struck down the young men with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While this one was still speaking, another also came and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the young men and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While this one was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans set up three companies and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the young men with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While this one was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in the house of their brother, the firstborn, and behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and touched the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. Yahweh gave, and Yahweh is taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he give offense to God. It takes your breath away, even this whole narrative and the conciseness of it. Very short descriptions of just a tremendous calamity, calamities that fell upon this man Job. In fact, that word fall is repeated, I think, three or four times in this, in this context ending with that time when Job fell. We'll see that 
in just a little bit. Now it happened. I'm not going to pay or, or unpack this to a tedious degree, but just to note, there are four different calamities that befall uh, Job. They alternate between um, human-caused and natural or even supernatural, but mostly natural, at least the perception is. And they alternate between that back and forth. They alternate from pretty much all the different directions of a compass, south and east and west and north, all coming upon... It's like the whole world is, is uh, oriented and... and uh, animated against Job. His world is falling apart. We see the very things that were listed as assets to him back in verse uh, three, verses 3 and, well, 2 and 3, seven sons, three daughters born to him, and all the, all the wealth that he had and so forth was taken away. Here we read the kind of in a different order that was presented, saving the best for last, if you don't mind, the sons and daughters that, that perished. It happened... I mean, and this is just words pregnant with, with the implication. What about the day that, that the sons and daughters were having their feast? And not just any feast, it was the feast in the firstborn's uh, house, right? So that must be the best one, right? Because he's, he is uh, established and all this kind of thing. And so on that day, when that was happening, hey, look over here. Uh, this messenger came to Job in verse 14 says, Look, the oxen, they were doing their work. The donkeys were feeding beside them. Oxen plowing. Plowing, we think it happens at various times of the year in Israel, which, okay, this probably didn't happen in Israel. Right? It's the land of Uz, which could be um, the southeast side of the Dead Sea. You see the Dead Sea over there on the map, southeast side of that. Or possibly it could be another consideration of where Job was is in the northeast. So from the Sea of Galilee north off into what's present-day Syria. Uh, it could be up there. Either direction, either place. I kind of favor the one to the south uh, for whatever that's worth. And at that time of year, they're plowing. Well, when does plowing happen? It happens in the late autumn, early winter. Because why, why does that happen? Because the early rains come. Uh, it, it doesn't rain in Southern California. No, it doesn't rain in, in that land, the Fertile Crescent and that in Israel, uh, during the summer times so from like May till October, November. It doesn't rain at all. Unless, you can read about it in First Samuel, when you ask for a king and God says you asked for a wrong thing, it's wicked, it's evil, I'm your king and I can't stand this. And because of the judgment of God that rained during the, the harvest time, which is, whoa, got their attention really quick. In any event, you harvest in the late autumn, early winter, harvest, excuse me, you plow in the late autumn, early winter, and that's when these events are going on. So these oxen were plowing, the donkeys were the service uh, like the tractors. Here's, here's the, the oxen doing the plowing, but the donkeys were the one that carried the implements, probably carried the seed to the place. And so these donkey, oxen and donkeys are together working. And these folks from, from, from Seba or Sheba came and fell upon them. Here's the first instance of that term fall. And what, what did they do? They struck down, excuse me, they fell upon the oxen and donkey and took them and struck down the young man or the servants with the edge of the sword that were going on there. And this one messenger alone was, was uh, left to bring back the news, this horrible news of, of what was going on. The Sabaeans, or, or the men from Sheba, again, these are probably from the south, probably modern-day Yemen. Uh, at this point, they were nomadic people, uh, but they settled at some point later. Uh, there's no record in the scriptures that they were bandits, other than, than here, of course. Uh, you know, Bandits, ne'er-do-wells uh, that are just going off stealing things. 
and here they come and take these oxen and the donkeys. There, there's some question, why would they do that? And especially if they live hundreds of miles away to transport these animals, you have to care for them. It, it's a great burden, and yet they said, we're going to take them and we're going to do what we want with them, and nothing is here to stop us. They stole them. It's wrong. It's nasty. It's what they did was wicked. And, by the way, killing the servants that were there tending to the oxen and donkeys, and just the one was left. That's a repeated line. You noticed it. I alone have escaped to tell you. There's always just one messenger left. Uh, and this is a repeated, that kind of heightens the drama, the, the import of the story, uh, the narrative. I mean, it's not making it up. It's just telling, hey, this is how it happened. And now this one has come back. Uh, just a great devastation upon him. Remember how many oxen and donkeys he had? Look back at, at verse 3. He had 500 pairs of oxen and 500 female donkeys, not including a few uh, males. But So what are we talking? 1,500 uh, uh, animals at this point taken away, just gone. One fell swoop, gone and away. Well, good grief. While this one was still giving his report, which was very brief, another came up, verse 16, and spoke to Job. By the way, Job is likely sitting down at this point as uh, men of of renown and nobility would have been sitting to receive the, the uh, messengers and so forth. And this one alternates now with a natural phenomenon. Even though they, saw, they talk about the fire of God falling from heaven, it's not so much attributing it to God specifically. It is saying this is, this is a... Uh, it can be talking about lightning, for example. It can also talk about volcanic activity, volcanic ash or, or stuff. You can talk about the fire of God that was on the Mount Sinai. So there's some supernatural elements, but it could just be lightning going on here. Later in, in Job, we'll read about lightning and what import and, import and, and terror that comes through it. But here is just the fire of God falling from heaven, and that burned up the sheep. Wait a minute, how many sheep are we talking? It burned them up, so they're gone, and the young men who were with them. If you look back at verse 3 again, there were 7,000 sheep. That's a lot of sheep. And it consumed them. The fire of God fell from heaven and destroyed all these things. God himself is the one who has charge of, over, of all the weather phenomena that we have, all the, the whirlwinds, the winds, the storms, the rain, the snow. We're going to see this. In fact, so many times in Job, we read about climactic events and weather-related phenomena and so forth. Well, who's in charge of all this? God is in charge of it. We'll come back to that here in just a little bit. So, his oxen and donkeys are gone. Now his sheep are gone. Again, it's not like, oh, those were nice, nice, pretty animals to look at. No, these guys were working, right? The oxen were plowing. What do you plow for? So you can plant your seeds, so you can grow something, so you can have food to feed your family and to sell to other people. What are the donkeys for? Service animals to help transport things, people, items, sheep. What are sheep good for? Food, clothing, right? The, the wool. Uh, even the, the skin can be used for clothing and for parchment and so forth. See, they aren't just animals. Like We are concerned for animals, but what are they good for? What, are, what were they doing? And Job's wealth, again, is expressed in terms of these livestock and the servants that he had. He's the greatest of the sons of the East and so forth. So little by little, piece by piece, over four uh, calamities, his wealth is being taken away from him. Now, it's interesting, and I won't make much, much a deal about it because it, it's not too germane to the topic. But when Abraham's wealth is described, uh, this is Genesis 24, when his servant Eliezer went to find a wife for Isaac, and he's explaining how God has blessed Abraham and the land of Canaan and all this with oxen and donkeys and sheep and servants and gold and silver. 
Gold and silver aren't mentioned here. It's likely that, that, that uh, Job had some liquidity, if you don't mind my saying. It wasn't all tied up in livestock. It wasn't hoof stock or, or that kind of thing. It was, he also had some, some currency. He's not, he's not destitute, but he is empty. He has nothing of, of his income-generating uh, facility. It's gone, and it will be, as we go forward, gone even farther. The point is, though, it comes from God. God can take it away, and blessed be his name. Verse 17, we've already had two calamities. The third one comes. While this one was still speaking, another also came and said, Chaldeans, Chaldeans are doing this. Well, who are the Chaldeans? We read about the Chaldeans mostly in relation to the, the Babylonians, Daniel, especially uh, in Chaldea, in over to the, to the far east, modern-day uh, Iraq. And yet at this point, probably they're, they're semi-nomadic uh, brigands, you know, um, bandits that are traveling around probably coming from the north. By the way, if you wanted to get from Babylon, modern-day Babylon, Iraq, from the, from the um, where the Tigris and Euphrates River come together, you don't just, and you want to get to Canaan over here, you don't just go straight as the bird flies. You'd go up and around. It's called the Fertile Crescent. And so even if they were living in the far east over here, they would come down from the north. So point is, the... the um, the fire of God probably came from the west. The, the, the Sabaeans came from the south. Now these Chaldeans are coming from the north. We'll see the, the whirlwind or the wind, the great wind that comes probably from the east across the desert. And so, again, all directions of the compass coming against Job to destroy him. Chaldeans, and this is not just a happenstance meeting. Oh, we didn't know you were here. By the way, this, what you have is ours. We're going to take it from you. No, these Chaldeans, they, they were strategic. They set up a, a three-company assault and divided their their military into this, and they made a raid on the camels. Again, camels are like buying box trucks and, and trains and, and buses and, and semi-tractors and those kind of, it, these are the instruments of, of, of uh, trade and commerce and travel and, and transportation. And so they took 3,000 camels. Wow. Yeah, that's a boon for them, a great loss for Job. They took them, and just for good measure, because this is what evil people do uh, and what Satan does, he's a specialty at specialist at this, murdering, killing, destroying. They just killed everybody, except this one messenger who was left, just like the other guys were left, or ladies, doesn't really say, uh, to bring this message back to Job. Why do you kill? Why do you just indiscriminately kill these people? It's because it's evil, just wicked, abject wickedness, killing people and taking things. It's wrong. Verse 18, while this one was still speaking, and this is what we've been waiting for. What about these sons and daughters? It wasn't just a chronological marker. Oh, it was, you know, the first day of the week or whatever, Whatever frequency, remember, I don't know, why did these sons have a feast on their day? What was their day? Was it a birthday? Was it a day of the week? We don't know. But somehow, on that day, when the best of the best celebration is going on, all of his kids were together in one house, which is just a heartwarming experience. The father's just sitting there smiling, but also in the back of his mind, thinking, okay, which of those animals am I going to slaughter on behalf of my kids? Because perhaps they have cursed God in their hearts, and so I need to make a sacrifice for them. It doesn't have any animals to offer sacrifices anymore. They're gone for him. And so this, this message comes to him. He's still sitting, doesn't have a minute even to respond or a moment to respond. And this message comes in verse 18, your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in the house of their brother, the firstborn. I mean, they're just having a good time like they normally did. It was in the best of the best, the house of the firstborn. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness. This great wind, some have described it as a whirlwind, you know, a circular uh, tornadic kind of an event. 
Uh, it just says a great wind, kind of like it says a great fish came and swallowed Jonah. It's just a great fish. What, what kind of fish? Don't know. What kind of wind? A great one, a big enough wind, a most powerful wind that can destroy a house. I mean, okay, not a, a tent. These aren't just nomadic people. They aren't, you know, sitting, dwelling in, in the temporary shelters. These are established houses, uh, just as Job would describe uh, later. And it says it touched the four corners of the house, pillars and all these, and it, it destroyed it. It collapsed. It fell upon the young people, and they died. No survivors. And the attendants, the servants that were there as well, died. All the young people died, and just this one person. And it never is the question, well, how did these one messenger guys escape? Well, how did, you know, what were they, were they kind of coward? We don't know. We don't care. It's irrelevant to the story. The point is, loss after loss after loss after loss. And what is Job going to do? Again, we have to remind ourselves, well, what's this all about? Job has no clue, right? He doesn't know the, the heavenly court scene that we have access to in verses 6 through 12. We don't know what this is all about. But we, excuse me. Job didn't know. We know what it is. It's a contest. It's an accusation that Satan has against Job, yes, but ultimately against God. God, you're unfair. The only reason people will serve you, worship you, do all that stuff is because you give them gifts. You take all those gifts away, and Job is going to curse you to your face. All this, this blessing, all this excitement that you've given to him, all the, all the care and the hedge of protection around him, you take that away, and he will curse you. He will rise up and defile you. He will stand up against you and attribute to you evil and wickedness, you mark my words. And so God said, okay, you, you try it. This is what Satan has done. It's by the permission of God. It's by God's own, uh, um, you know, kind of pushing the issue forward, showing that he is good, sovereign, right in all these situations, all these circumstances, and that Job's faith is secure. It's not attached to the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the children, the servants, his wealth, his reputation, and it is tied to God himself. God is sufficient for Job. Notice all this This goes on, the, the destruction, the, taking the, the heart of Job out. I mean, okay, the sheep, all that stuff, that, that's important for commerce and, and all that. But his family, his children taken from him, killed, and they're not restored. You can get more sheep and get more donkeys, and that happens later. Children, no, ten children taken from Job in one horrible event, this great wind that came across the desert. Well, now is the moment that we've been waiting for. This is the moment where Satan has already ex expressed his expectation. Job is going to curse you. He's going to just, nah, enough of this Yahweh business. What do we see Job doing? We see a man who is in complete control of his faculties, his sensibilities. We see him who is resting in his doctrine. And you wonder, how much doctrine did he have? How much truth did, did Job have about Yahweh, about God? Again, the, this time period is probably around the time of the patriarchs, or 2000 or so BC. How much information, how much truth, how much experience did people have with Yahweh? Well, quite a bit. You can read Genesis 1 through 11 and 12 and, and on to, um, well, through the end of, of Genesis, the time of the patriarchs. There was quite a bit of experience that people had, quite a bit of knowledge of who God is. And even you know, we don't know. Remember in Genesis uh, 3 how God used to walk with his people in the cool of the day? Is it Genesis 3 or Genesis 2? In that context, that Adam and Eve talked with God face to face in their perfection. And that's what happened after the fall, right? 
God came down and he says, Adam, where are you? And you can read all about that in Genesis 3 because he was hoping to have a conversation, God was, with his people. And so how much did Adam and Eve know? It wasn't just that one command, right? Don't eat three of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, all the other, no, God was explaining himself to Adam and Eve. So what kind of knowledge did Adam and Eve pass on to the next generation? I don't know. Job had a pretty marvelous and substantive understanding of who God is such that all these calamities that befell him, he still had his wits about him. He still had his, his sensibilities. He still had his sense of decorum, his sense of what is proper. He is a great man, not just because of all his wealth. He is a, a good, blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil kind of fella, man of wisdom, profound intelligence, profound experience in his life. It's not like this is his first rodeo, if you don't mind. He's had difficulties in life, but he has relied upon Yahweh. So what does he do? He got up. He didn't rise up in, in anger. He, he didn't you know, uh, say, okay, you, 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 well, and you, because he has four servants left. Of all the people, he had, all the, you guys with me, we're going to go after the Sabaeans. We're going to have to, wait a minute, they're going in different directions. How are we going to do this? His first word was not revenge, violence, cursing, uh, whatever. It was lament. He arose, he tore his robe, he shaved his head. These different expressions are attested to throughout Scripture. We can see in various places where men uh, would, would rend their garments in expression of grief, of sadness, of loss, of a great sorrow, of, of pain. Not just physical pain, but just emotional, ah, kind of a thing. So he is tearing his robe. Now, he had a nice robe, I imagine, a wealthy guy that he was. But he says, ah, it's nothing. It is an expression of my grief, which we'll see as it goes on. This grief shook him to his core. And we think, well, what's the big deal? I mean, he got, Job gets all the stuff back at the end, gets 10 more kids, right? And it'll be fine. He, he lost these things. He lost them in just a moment of time. These were, was his life. His life is in God, of course, but God has given to, the, to him these, these uh, resources to manage and care for it and to bless other people. He had people he was caring for. How is he going to provide for these different families? How is he going to meet the contract of, of wheat? or he, All these things. He is just undone. And so he rose. He tore his robe. Speechless, perhaps. Doesn't even know what to say. He shaved his head, which is an indication, perhaps, that he identifies with the dead more than living. It is an indication of, again, just intense grief of, uh, I'm, I don't even have time. It's kind of like when, when the, the Pharisees would fast and pray. They wouldn't anoint their head and all that kind of stuff. Job says, I'm not even anointing my head. I'm just getting rid of the whole thing. So I don't have to care for it. I've got other concerns going on here. Could be all, all that. But it's an expression, again, like tearing the rope, of grief, of lament, of just being overpowered by, by sadness and loss. And then it says he fell to the ground. Not in a, a spasmodic, uh, out-of-control just like a seizure kind of activity. He fell to the ground and worshipped. These two words used together, falling down and worshipping, are used often in Scripture to describe an attitude and a posture of prayer and praise, recognizing that he is uh, falling down before God, not just falling out on the ground and, and flailing about and you know doing a demonstration. He is falling down and worshipping. <coughs> Uh, not in despair, but in reverence, it says. There, this idea, again, of falling down and weeping is a Hebrewism, a combination of terms, 
and we can see it in different respects. One of the one of the profound times is is not so much a time of grief or of sadness or of pain, but of woe kind of a thing. You remember this in Joshua 5, when Joshua is there just before the battle, or after, um, or before, excuse me, before the battle of Jericho. Joshua's by Jericho, lifted up his eyes and looked. Behold, a man was standing. It's the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down. This same word, same terms, fell. And here it's translated bowed down. It's this word here, worshiped. And he said to him, what has my Lord to say to his slave? Because it's the Lord, the commander of the armies, that is there talking with with Joshua. David uh, rose also from his, uh, from fell on his face and bowed down to Jonathan. It's a sign of uh, respect, homage, uh, worship, praise. I mean, he's not worshiping Jonathan, but he's, he's showing honor to him. And many other examples we could look at, this idea of falling down and worshiping. Job has not lost it. He's not out of his senses. He has complete control. He's acting deliberately. He's acting with much awareness that his people are watching, People are seeing, okay, this is a man who fears God. Satan is watching. All of his minions are Heavenly court is watching. Okay, how's Job going to respond? God, meanwhile, is not concerned in the least. He's not concerned because God knows what is right and what is just, and he knows Job's heart. He attested to it himself. He's going to affirm it and in chapter 2 as well. And to put a little period at the end or exclamation mark, he still holds fast his integrity. He is a man with one heart. He's not divided. His attention wasn't on the wealth that I gave him. It was on me. And we see this even how he fell down to worship. And then he said, verse 21, these are the words that came out of Job's mouth, not cursing God, as Satan anticipated. In fact, the exact opposite, which just made Satan's blood boil if he has blood, just, just absolutely put him out of sorts. Job said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. You think, well, good grief. What, what's that about? You, you're talking. You're going to die now, Job? I mean, he's talking about birth, and now death? I'm going to return to mother's womb or grave. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But the idea is I had nothing to start, and if I have nothing to end, that's fine. I don't deserve anything. All of, all of the stuff given to me is from the gift of God, which we'll see in his next phrase, he has entrusted it to me. If, if I have it all the way through my life, tremendous, fantastic. I want to pass it on to my children. My children are no more, so what good is it to me? And I, I, I can't provide any benefit to other people. So I was naked when I came into the world, and naked I'm going to return uh, uh, to, to death. This idea, you can look at Ecclesiastes 5.15, I think it is, that, trend, that uh, verse uh, has the same idea that, just you have nothing, and and uh, you'll enter, you'll leave the world. It's also a um, thought in First Timothy chapter six that if we have food and clothing, we should be content with these things. Some people think godliness is a, is a means of great gain. You know, if you're, if you're godly, God will pay you back. He will he will add um, produce or or stuff to your piety. He will you, you sow to the spirit, you'll reap eternal life. You you sow these things, and you'll get back from it. No, you are content with what God provides. And if he takes it away, you are thankful for that as well. Philippians 4, of course, I can do all things. What can you do, Paul? I have learned how to be content, whether I have lots of stuff or have nothing. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. What can you do, Paul? I can be content. And so Job here is saying, 
these things are gifts of God. They come to me. I don't deserve it. I didn't earn it. Okay, he did the work, but it, it's, it's God's. It's God's resource. I'm his steward, and so I deserve nothing. Nothing is attached to my name. Ecclesiastes talks about this as well. About, uh, uh, In fact, some people have made the comparison between Job's experience and Solomon's experience. Job loses everything and finds God. Solomon gains everything and loses God, right? He tried to test himself with all these pleasures, all the, all the stuff. But he says it's, it's meaningless. It's, it's foolishness. Here's the deal. Job would agree. Solomon would agree. Fear God. Keep his commandments. This applies to every person. Fear God. Keep his commandments. Do what he says to do. Job's response here in verse 21 is so tremendous for us as an example in verse 20 also, that we don't need to go about crying and screaming and, and pitching a fit over things, but to calmly cry. It's okay to cry over these things, a sense of loss, and not just a sense of loss, a real loss. We lost this loved one or this, this thing or this whatever. Cry before the Lord, but also as you, as you come before the Lord, bow down and worship him. He is worthy of praise. He is the one. He is the one, not us. Not the, not the object that he gives, and he can take away as well. It is God himself who is our strength, our stay, our life, our meaning of life, our, our hope uh, for this life and the next. Job says, I came naked from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. Is he saying he's going back to his mother's womb? No. Uh, the idea of um, Psalm 139, verse 13, I think it is, has a similar idea, comparing in the depths of the earth I was fashioned. Wait a minute. The psalmist there is comparing his, his prenatal experience with being fashioned together in the depths of the earth. The idea is from dust to dust. You're made out of dust. You're made out of clay. We are creatures um, made from the earth. And so Job is saying, I came from my mother's womb. He's changing the analogy a little bit. And naked I shall return there, not to his mother's womb, but to the earth, to death, uh, to, to Sheol, if you don't mind, the, the place of the dead. And he says, look, the emphasis is not on where. It's on the, the situation, the condition. Naked, nothing. Got nothing, I'm empty. Uh, there's nothing attached to me, nothing that, that um, distracts me, nothing that, that uh, takes my fancy. I, I've got nothing, I'm empty. God has to uh, provide for me. It is a contrast even between uh, Job's emptiness and Yahweh's fullness. God is full of everything. Luke chapter 1, this is Christmas season. You can read Luke 1, the Magnificat, Mary's statement. He says, she says that God has sent the rich, the full, away empty. And that's a negative kind of, the rich who are rich in their own works, like the Laodicean church in Revelation 3, rich in their own works and their own righteousness and so forth. God says those people are away empty. Forget about that. But he has clothed the righteous with strength and honor and power and all these things because of faith in Christ, because of what Christ is doing. Well, this next phrase in 21, verse 21, I've hinted at it and talked all about it. It's this phrase, a, a statement, a declaration that, that Job is saying to other people, whoever's around him, but he's saying it to himself. He's saying, look, I came in naked. I'm going to leave naked. Yahweh gave. Yahweh has taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. All these phrases here on the screen now are important and here at the end of verse 21. If Job had just said Yahweh gave, it would have focused on what Job has the benefits. He would have been living in the past. You know, God, Yahweh gave those things. I remember, 
my kids, you know, he would have named them and had, you know, obviously would have named the kids, but he would have known them and their situations, their dreams and aspirations. He would have focused on it. If he focused on the idea Yahweh gave these wonderful good things, he would have been fixated upon the gift rather than the giver. But he's not. He's not saying Yahweh gave. It was so good, that good times. He was living in the past. And, and, and we can do that as well. When we lose people or, you know, not lost and found, but we lose through death or, or sickness or all these things. We can have a sense of, oh, those good old days when, when so-and-so was well, true, but it's Yahweh. Yahweh, you focus on him. Yahweh has given. We focus not on the gift, whether it's given or, or taken, but on the giver, always. And if Job had just said, Yahweh is taken away, it would have indicated a kind of a, a sense of resignation, a sense of, yeah, God does whatever he want, wants. It's similar to, not exactly the same, but, but this idea that you know, Yahweh gave, Yahweh is taken away. If we just even said those two phrases individually, you could think, well, it's just a, a indiscriminate, dispassionate, you know, things happen. Kesara, sara, whatever will be, will be. You don't have any control over these things. And that's, if you read Ecclesiastes wrongly, you'll get to that same idea. That it doesn't really matter what you do. It's all vanity, emptiness. That's not the message of Ecclesiastes. It's not Job's message. It's not the message even of, of C.S. Lewis, The Last Battle, talking about this guy Shift, this ape, misrepresenting Aslan all over the place. The whole idea of Aslan being a picture of Christ is that, Yah, that, that Aslan is good. He's good. He's king. But he's not a tame lion. You have to read the stories. And that comes into the whole narrative in The Last Battle, that he's not a tame lion after all. And so you really don't know what he's going to do next. And by the way, I want more bananas and more peanuts and we need more nuts right shift is a an ape so he wants those and it is orient the whole thing around himself job is not like that he knows he rests in the knowledge of who the true yahweh is not this false uh, perception not a, a a bland resignation of you know all the events of the universe are against me and i just have no hope no yahweh gave yahweh's in charge here yahweh is the one who gives yahweh is the one who takes away it's not so much Satan, by the way. And we'll see this in the next uh, segment, Heavenly Court scene, and throughout uh, the, the remainder of Job, that God is always in control. God is the one who gives life and, and so forth and takes life. And we think, well, how, how is God not guilty then of, of sin? We'll get to that. But the point is, God is sovereign. He is right. He is good, always. Because Job says here at the end, blessed be the name of Yahweh. Whatever God does is right. He maketh no mistake. There's a song. You can look it up. He maketh no mistake. It's not like he was overpowered. You know, Satan got him in a corner, and, and the only thing God could do is destroy Job. No, it's not anything near the sort. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. We want to attribute praise and honor and worth and righteousness to God. It's not somehow making God bigger uh, um, existentially, not, not, not making God somehow a bigger God by praising him or, or uh, blessing him. We are acknowledging God is full. I mean, God is. I mean, that's really the root word of, this, of the phrase Yahweh. Is. He is. He exists. He, the, eternality is part of his being, which is not like us. Yahweh is the one. We acknowledge, we get in line with all the angels, the sons of God, the, the angels, the morning stars and so forth, praising God, giving true statements about God. In fact, we saw it back in verse 20 when Job fell to the ground and worshipped Worship is both a, a physical activity, this posture of prayer, of, of devotion, you know, 
Uh, 1 Timothy 2 talks about men lifting up holy hands in prayer and so forth. There is that the attitude of, uh, or the, the posture rather, of prayer and worship. But even more so, it is in a speaking event. Here it says, he fell to the ground and worshiped, and he said. So there is a vocal or verbal aspect to worship. You can't just have warm, fuzzy feelings in your heart, mm, just celebrating God. You've got to speak something about it. You've got to say, thank you. Uh, you, you've got to say, praise God, blessed be the name of Yahweh. He is the one who knows the end from the beginning. He's the one who is able to do things for his own glory. He is so, so jealous and zealous for his reputation. Not that he needs praise. I mean, remember, he is eternal. There's God, there's everything else. He exists outside of time. He doesn't need anything. He delights in the worship of his people. He receives that even as a sacrifice, the, the, the fruit of the lips, the, the praise, the words as a sacrifice, a sweet aroma in God's nostrils. And so Job is here blessing the name of Yahweh, not just the name like, like John or, or Frank or, or Jesse or whatever the name is, but everything about his name, everything about his person, who he is, his character, his works, celebrating his compassion, celebrating his sovereignty, celebrating his goodness. He is blessing the name, everything he knows about Yahweh. This name, by the way, Yahweh, is very much in chapter 1 and a little bit in chapter 2 and a little bit in chapter 42, the last chapter. But Job, in the whole course of this narrative, he's the only one who uses the name Yahweh. The other guys talk about the Almighty, they talk about God, a couple different terms for God, but they don't take his, his name Yahweh. And there's a verse, and I, it's hard to understand. It's Exodus 6 and verse 3. Write this down and try to come head, you know, make heads or tails of this. When God is speaking to Moses, he says, I was known to, Ab to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as El Shaddai, or God Almighty. But by my name, Yahweh, I was not known to them. You think, well, we read about Yahweh. The name appears in Genesis 2. It appears multiple times throughout Abraham's existence. You remember he made... Uh, in Genesis 22, when he offered or was offering Isaac on the, as a burnt offering to Yahweh, God provided a lamb or a ram to, to die in the place of Isaac, and Abraham named that place, in our anglicized term, Jehovah Jireh. Yahweh provides. So wait a minute. God didn't reveal himself as Yahweh. Whatever he said in Exodus 6.3, I'm not sure how to understand that versus the the narrative is not a fault of the scripture or of God's intention. I just don't get it. And a lot of people don't understand this. They some different ideas, suggestions, what it might be. The point is, Job is the only one who talks to talks about God in a very personal relationship. Not God or the unknown God like in Athens, Acts 17, but God, Yahweh. I know him. And he knows certain things about him, and he rests in that knowledge. Yahweh gave, Yahweh is taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. And then in verse 22 a summary statement by the narrator. Through all this, through his rising up, rending his garments, cutting his hair, falling down to the ground, worshiping, saying what he said, through all this, Job did not sin. He did, and this word sin, kind of a generic term, he didn't uh, transgress, he didn't miss the mark. We read about that a lot of time in the New Testament, uh, the idea of missing the mark. He didn't, he didn't uh, you know, he was right on target in terms of his response to these calamities that befell him. Job did not sin, nor did he give offense to God. Nor did he, this is the last time we see this, this idea of fall. You remember the, the thing, different calamities fell upon Job, and then Job fell to the ground. 
this idea of offense is the idea of falling or it's kind of a hard term to understand what he's getting at. But it's a negative thing, right? He did not give offense to God. It's an endorsement. Hey, Job was right in this way. And he did not attribute to God wrong things or uh, violence or hateful activity or or somehow that Job, or excuse me, that God violated Job in a, in a mean, nasty, vindictive, uh, vengeful kind of a sense. No, nothing like that. Job is resting in the knowledge of Yahweh as much as he knew about him in that time, such that these calamities, tremendous, tremendous, heavy weights just in the moment, but then looking forward just the next day, what am I going to do tomorrow? Job is, God is for me. Yahweh has given. Yahweh has taken away. He, he knows me. He knows my situation. He knows my, my need. He'll provide. I will not give offense to God. I will not attribute to him things that are not true, not right, and that would defame him. Certainly nowhere near that accusation that Satan had. I'll curse you to your face. God, you, you almighty guy up there on the throne. He is going to rise up and he's going to curse you. I know it. Didn't happen. It didn't happen. Job rested in the knowledge that he had of Yahweh, and it carried him through the first of the calamities. And you think, well, Satan, he's not giving up that easy, right? No. We'll read about that next time in chapter 2, another test. Again, isolating the variables, Job said, or Satan said, take all that away from him. He'll curse you to your face. And God says, all that he has is in your hands, but do not touch him. Well, guess what's going to happen next? Satan is going to touch, in a, not, a, not a nice way, Job. And we'll see, okay, we'll see just how real this piety is, how this religiosity is. What kind of a man is Job, and what kind of a God is Yahweh? Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful for your truth and the power of your word, the power of knowing you and resting in you and finding you as a sufficient Savior. You are the one, the only one who's right in all these situations you, you have recorded for us in the letter to the Romans that let God be found true through every man a liar. You're the one who's right, and your testimony is always right and good, and so we rest in that. We don't always understand, we don't, can't always explain, but we can always give thanks to you because you are good, you are sovereign, you are attentive, you are powerful. When the calamities happen, when there is loss, real loss, not just a sense of loss, but real loss, we pray that we would respond as Job did not sinning, not giving offense to you, not attributing to you things that are not right and not not, uh, appropriate to you, but always giving glory to you, resting in the knowledge that you, you act for your glory. You are jealous for your name, but you also do things that are good, that promote sanctification and grace in our lives. Again, we pray that each person here would be saved in a, in a right relationship with you by Christ, but also growing in Christ. We want uh, more of Christ in our lives. We want to see him more on our lips, on our, in our attitudes, in our relationships, in our choices, in the way that we spend our time and money and all the resources you've given to us for our enjoyment, yes, but for the use of, to accomplish your purposes in this world. Please help us to glorify Christ and sanctify him. We thank you and pray in Christ's name. Amen.